Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. This is week one of our March Mental Health Book Club of Bessel van der Kolk's, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, book called The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma is the full title of the book. So I chose this book mainly because I am a therapist trained in EMDR. And since people know that I work with trauma, they always ask me, have you read The Body Keeps the Score? Apparently, it's the it's the it book that trauma therapists or just people who are remotely aware of trauma have read. So I was like, ah, this mental health book club is a great excuse to finally get around to reading that. going to go ahead and get my first impressions uh, because for those who have been listening to this book club over the past few months, I've chosen some memoirs. I chose one kind of uh, self-help slash follow your dreams kind of book. And so I thought by choosing this, it would be like a more informational book, but it's very scientifically dense. So I wasn't expecting is to, I mean, it's written by a physician. I probably could have used some context clues or read a review, but, you know, like to keep it spontaneous too. I usually don't read these books before the the book club actually happens. So anyway, my initial impressions are this is a very academic type book. So I'm interested in y'all's initial takes on it. Because it's academic doesn't mean it's bad. I just, that that was my first kind of like, oh, this is not what I thought I was getting. So I'm just interested to see what y'all are thinking about that. For me, it's, I I do, I like that it is academic. I also like it's giving the history and the background of kind of discovering, you know, everybody knew what trauma was, but they had different names for it, like shell shock or, you know, when survivors of war would come home. So I'm, yes, definitely different. I'm enjoying the kind of evolution in the science of identifying trauma in the brain. So I think that's interesting. I think I had the same reaction as you, John Zell. Like, uh, I mean, obviously, like, it's a book about trauma, but I wasn't expecting it to be, like, so, like, academic and, like, kind of like a, a textbook read, like, if you will. Um, but I feel like it's very interesting. And, like, probably he talked about, like, so far, I might be getting ahead, but, like, work with, like, the veterans and stuff like that. Because when I think of trauma, like, that's where my mind goes first, like, to that like community but yeah i think first impression it's it's very active and i like despite the fact that i'm pretty sure he's a psychiatrist but he might be a so for listeners of this podcast it's useful to break down some terms psychiatrist is a medical doctor that typically prescribes medication for mental health conditions a psychologist is typically a person trained uh, often at the at least master's level, sometimes doctorate level. Um, they tend to specialize more in uh, mental health testing. Um, so for example, if you have ADHD and you want medication, you'll sometimes go to a psychologist to get like a full um, like battery of tests done to prove that you have ADHD before someone will prescribe. Then you have your therapist who uh, provide like talk therapy and counseling. And then there's it's worth mentioning that just because you have a bachelor's degree in psychology does not make you a psychologist. 
that's a thing out here in these streets. People will try to say that, oh, I'm a psychologist. You're not. You have a degree in psychology. Um, and as someone who holds a bachelor's degree in psychology, that thing didn't teach me Nara nothing about how to be a therapist. So shots fired. But I like to define the different terms of what those things are, just in case, you know, not everybody is is privy to that. So um, going back to the author, I'm going to call him Bessel, but he is, I believe, a psychiatrist, but it seems that he's a practicing psychiatrist, which means, yes, he can prescribe medication, but he's also doing therapy work. And that is not so typical today. I believe most of his work was, it was a while back, uh, like the research that he kind of based this book on. Uh, but most, at least in the, I can only speak for the Richmond area, which is where all of my experience is. Psychiatrists stay in their lane and they prescribe medication. Oh, another uh, role is a psychiatric nurse practitioner who is a basically a, a nurse, a nurse practitioner who has taken additional courses to do the psych uh, medication piece. So they actually have about just as much, uh, they kind of do the same thing as a psychiatrist. Um, and they're very popular, at least in the Richmond area, because there's not enough psychiatrists. So psych nurse practitioners and psychiatrists are kind of medication providers. And then you got your your um, therapists who can be licensed professional counselors, licensed clinical social workers, or even it gets so confusing because you can have a psychologist um, and they're usually like licensed clinical psychologists, but psychologists can also be therapists. So it gets a little, um, anyway, usually people's professions, they kind of stay in their lane. So like I'm a therapist, I do not prescribe medication. A psychiatrist oftentimes, at least around here, is not providing therapy to people. They're doing the medication piece. So it was just interesting to see that this author um, is a psychiatrist, but he's like doing therapy work. And also he's kind of doing research as well. And again, in the mental health field, people kind of pick a lane. So like you have psychologists who do the research and then the therapists and the psychiatrists kind of read that research and info, you know, we kind of like stay in our little bubble. So it was kind of cool to like see him have his hand in a lot of different things. But also he made it kind of a narrative about how he was like paying his dues and kind of like learning as he went. And I think that resonates with me because when I first started, when I moved to Richmond and got involved in the field, it was a lot of trial and error and like relearning of the stuff that they teach you in school. So there's a little bit of narrative to it, but it's definitely very clinical. So I wanted to get that out of the way because uh, I was surprised and I was like, ah, this is a textbook. Hopefully this doesn't like because truly, if y'all say, I hate this book and I don't want to keep reading it, I'm fine with that. Uh, but I just wanted to kind of get a gauge on what y'all were thinking. But y'all, uh, the two that are here, y'all have gotten some things out of it that have been helpful so far. Yeah, I mean, I can say as a trauma survivor of various forms of fuckery, um, I'm finding it really just validating and interesting and it kind of explaining um, things that used to happen to me when I was a kid, especially like my, you know, uncontrolled vomiting, nausea, um, headaches, um, you know, lots of physical pain that, but that was, you know, and whatever the eighties, they didn't really pay attention to that, but it, it's, 
it's for me, it's very validating. And you're not the first um, person that I've known. You know, my um, I've had a lot of people recommend this book to me um, just as a trauma survivor. So, so I'm finding it. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. I'm finding it interesting too. Um, I, I do think at times in like the first half or like the sections that like we've read so far, I was kind of like, Oh my God, this is such a textbook, but the history of Prozac. Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) I feel like that was actually like kind of interesting compared to like some other things that they talked about. Cause I, I have a, like my undergrad degrees in psychology, but I don't work in the field. So some of it like kind of reminded me of school and I'm like, wow, like I don't remember this in school, but anyway, um, I'm interested to see like this next part, um, as like someone who has like a specific trauma that like I haven't really visited in therapy and I probably should soon, but I'm interested in the connection, like the mind-body connection to see if like a certain like pain condition that I have is related to that trauma. I'm thinking that it probably is, but like, I'm just really interested to see like how like that unfolds like in this book, like the mind-body connection. There was a lot of statistics that were thrown in here. And I was, I'm kind of, uh, I love that kind of stuff, like where it'll give like, I mean, I say I love that kind of stuff, but like literally the statistics are like the rates of sexual abuse and molestation and beating and all of this stuff. Um, it was interesting. Uh, I want to say I read somewhere in here that it was like one in three women and one in four men um, are um, sexually assaulted at some point in their life. And I believe that's the first time that I've like, and I could be mixing up something I read in an article too. So don't quote me on that. But I feel like it's only more recently that we're hearing the the fact that like those sorts of things happening to men are very close to the frequency that is happening to women. And I would argue as a male therapist who, you know, when I do find like when I do work with like men who have been through something, it's so hush hush and like, so much shame and like, I'm a real man, you know, that I believe it's so underreported that it's probably 50-50. Like, I think it's probably equal. I think it's underreported with women too. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, significantly. So I, I, I think the one in three, it seems alarming, but like, you know, I was sexually assaulted by a boyfriend's father. (laughs) <laughs> and I didn't really realize at the time, you know, what was going on and everything. So I was so young, but um, I never told any, you know, that was never reported, you know? Yeah. I think yeah. A, a lot of like women are out there with like, not an exactly similar story to you, um, Becky, but like, I think that there are a lot of women out there that have been assaulted sexually and don't necessarily realize that that was what happened to them. So like, or like, you know, internalize it like, oh, well, you know, I wanted it or like, I somehow made like this person like attack me or, or whatever, which, you know, is usually incorrect, but like, it's not reported as often as it happens. I think too, like John also the shame of, of men, like if it is equal, you know, which it very well could be, we would never potentially know until everyone, you know, is honest and that stigma is 
taken away. Um, and I think the stigma is even great in different types of communities. That's one of those things where intersectionality is, you know, obviously as a therapist, I kind of, I, my profession is observing human behavior, but like, uh, it's also a privilege to like be able to work with people across many different spectrums and the to see like, obviously, you could probably figure out like, out of what demographic would you think would be the least likely to report their sexual abuse in a therapy setting? It's Black men, right? Uh, and when it happens, I could tell you countless stories of Black men who have been in therapy with me for years and something just happens and then it like all comes out right like so it in in some instances it's like a lot of they have to have that trust and you know rapport for a very long time before they could ever even think about you know and i'm constantly like with with clients i've had for years and they'll like bring something up and i'm like why didn't you tell me that and they're like i didn't even think of it like the dissociation and the like you know we learned that in this section how our brains kind of, you know, put things away and stuff like that. But going through therapy and doing work on myself, I realized that there, there are sometimes just things like little things, something will set you off and I'll feel so triggered and then remember something. And I think what's really hard about that, you know, we talk about how the body keeps the score and yet this book is so academic and I still can't really explain to you how it happens. I just know that when I know, I know, if that if that makes sense, and have to come back to it for what is my warning, what's my, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's so hard, especially because my my work is in the field of DEI. When you've been in these situations to trust yourself, it's so hard to say, is my spidey sense up? Is my frontal lobe overreacting because frontal lobes have a tendency to be Neanderlithic? Or is this dangerous? I feel like sometimes I gaslight myself because of trauma that's been held. And I have trouble rationalizing a threat. And I have trouble working through my anxiety because my body is going, I've been here before, I've been here before, I've been here before. And it, it will make it like I can ruin my day that way. I can ruin my week that way by running with a thought. And yet at the same time, the rational brain says, sometimes there is a reason why we feel this way. And that, that's been the hardest thing for me is trying to balance caution with healing. Um, but to piggyback off of that, there is a, a chunk, uh, hopefully y'all have been like highlighting and uh, getting quotes while you read your book, because I encourage y'all to share them as you find them relevant or things that made you think. Uh, but I'm going to jump in with the first one on page three, quotes, we know that trauma compromises the brain area that communicates the physical embodied feeling of being alive. These changes explain why traumatized individuals become hypervigilant, which uh, Brianna just shared about, to, to threat at the expense of spontaneously engaging in their day-to-day -day lives. They also help us to understand why traumatized people so often keep repeating the same problems and have such trouble learning from experience. We now know 
that their behaviors are not the result of moral failings or signs of lack of willpower or bad character. They are caused by actual changes in the brain, end quote. And this part right here, three pages into the book, as a whole licensed therapist of now four years and a uh, working mental health professional of like seven and a half years, this hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, it reminded me because sometimes I'll work with like people who keep doing, you know, it's the, well, you know, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. This really hit me and it made sense to me because it's like, the reason you're doing things over and over again, expecting different results is because the trauma didn't just like fuck you up. It literally changed the physiology of your brain. And we have to understand that and work back from that place. That was very powerful to me. So I wanted to share that. I felt like it paired well with what Brianna just shared, but I want to pass the mic to y'all. Did y'all have any like aha epiphany moments um, as you were going through this? And you don't only have to just pick one because we have a little bit of time to kind of discuss this. I, um, my, it's, it's again, a piggy piggyback. Off of it. So it's on page 31 and it's the, um, the last paragraph before the addicted to trauma part where it says scared animals return home, regardless of whether home is safe or frightening. I thought about my patients with abusive families who kept going back to be hurt again. Are traumatized people condemned to seek refuge in what is familiar? If so, why? And is it impossible or is it possible to help them become attached to places and activities that are safe and pleasurable? And that to me, my brain, Brianna does kind of like what you do, what yours does. Um, I will just dissociate or, you know, because it's, it's stuck in the trauma loop of years and years and years of just, you know, fuckery. Um, so I put beside this, I'm so lucky, right? That's what I put. So, you know, I, I don't know how I have come to be where I am because um, I don't know, luck or, or whatever. Um, but because um, my, my husband is wonderful. He's a caring, gentle, loving man. Um, and, you know, so I just put, I'm, I'm so lucky. So Becky, I do think that it's great to recognize um, that you've had good fortune, but, and I, I'm not saying that your husband's not a great guy. Sounds like he's a great guy. But I also don't think it's just luck. I think that you work really, really hard on yourself um, and you're always expressing that and you're always working on these things. So our choices are half chance, but the other part that's not chance is what we're willing to do. And I think that breaking cycles are really hard. So just want to say as someone who's going to know you through this, it's it's not just luck. Thank you. And that, and that is true because I've always said, you know, like whatever my mom did, I'll do the opposite. Or I just always had a knowing, you know, I don't know how or why, but, but yes, I, I do a lot of therapy and <laughs> reading. I'm reading a book now called the surrender experience or experiment. Um, I don't know. That's really cool too. Cause I need to work on surrendering, um, not overthinking stuff. Um, yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you, Brianna, for sharing earlier. Um, Again, you can, I guess, yeah, I appreciate your thoughts on that. That was, that was nice to hear and not nice, but you know what I mean? Bonding, I guess you could say. I, I feel you. So on page seven, um, and it was the quote, like, 
the beginning of the page or like the middle of the page where it says like some people's lives seem to flow in a narrative mine had many stops and starts that's what trauma does it interrupts the plot it just happens and then life goes on no one prepares you for it and i'm like i had that like circled and like highlighted because i think that exactly that's what like trauma does like it just like comes in it can kind of like blow up your life in a way and like you kind of have to like learn how to like live with it and like accept it and you know not beat yourself up for it because a lot of times like it's not your fault like it just comes in happens and I was like wow that's a really accurate description of a lot some of the traumas that like I've gone through like it was very unexpected and happened it's kind of like all right now how do I like deal with like this this heavy thing that you know I didn't ask for or you know I couldn't have prevented like it just happened and now I have to like work through that definitely and someone had mentioned it a while ago but anybody who has experienced any sort of trauma or has been on TikTok has heard the term dissociation, right? It's actually so overused uh, in the social media sphere that sometimes it gets muddied because people are like, oh, I dissociated. And I'm like, no, you just have a low attention span, but that's neither here nor there. But dissociating is a huge symptom of trauma, right? And I think what we learned through these was it 109 pages? It was a lot. There's so many different like nuances and ways. And like, I was never big on the psychobiology side of things, like as far as like understanding the chemicals and stuff. But I, w- I felt like I was given a nice tour of the the nuances of this. And even the author says like, it's not, he doesn't have it all figured out. But I think being kind of taken through like the research and the uh, given those like vignettes of like the different people and stuff and like being, I'm a, I'm the type of person where you can tell me a theory or a principle or a concept until it's applied to real life. It doesn't mean anything to me. And it reminds me of on page 11, he said his, his great teacher, Elvin Simrad, uh, taught us to be skeptical about textbooks. We had only one real textbook, he said, our patients. We should trust only what we can learn from them and from our own experience, end quote. And that is very true, at least to me as a therapist, because yes, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. Yes, I have a master's in professional counseling. Ain't none of that shit has anything to do with me being a therapist. Uh, Everything I know about being a therapist is when I got to Richmond and I started working with people in trial and error and learning how to talk to people, learning how to build trust with people and walking alongside of them in their journey. And we fall on our face together until we learn something that works. That's, that's where I get all of my uh, insights and superpowers from. So I just kind of like the the little journey, despite it being kind of dense, but yes, there's very, uh, there's a bunch of different like ways that the dissociation kind of aspect of trauma goes in here. Um, so with that in mind, was there anything about dissociation or kind of like how trauma will take you offline or remove you from the here and now that like jumped out at anybody as you were reading? 
Um, so I thought about what you were saying now and about the textbook example. And I was reading this before I went to a leadership conference on Saturday. And in the leadership conference, someone was expressing frustration. We were talking about having difficult conversations. And someone said one of her struggles in managing was having a terse conversation with an employee and the employee being apathetic and that she sees this as a trend. And so, you know, these women are troubleshooting and like trying to help her. And then I finally just said, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. And I said, do you think they're apathetic or do you think that they're dissociating? Mic drop. Um, So we had a chat about that. But the work that she does is really hard emotional work the public service work that she's doing and so do I think that you have real burnout because people are tired and that they could be getting apathetic for sure it's why I've made a few career switches um but do I also think that people could be dissociating yes and so reading these chapters was very validating but also reminded me that really really smart really, really caring and really, really capable people still like, I feel like we're talking in this group and there are things that we intuitively know. And now we're getting verbiage and a toolbox to explain it. And yet there are really capable, well-intentioned and caring people out there that don't get this. And that was really hard for me. And yet also valuable for me to see. When I, especially when I do trauma work with clients and stuff like that, I, if I kind of learned anything from, you know, becoming an EMDR therapist and just having seen, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of clients, I guess, over the years, you know, the brain is the most high tech device we'll ever have. Like, fuck a Tesla, iPhone, computer, Bitcoin, whatever. It's always the cutting edge of technology, whatever, whatever. The brain, we don't even understand a fragment of what it can do. But what I really find fascinating and a metaphor that helps me to break this down to clients in layman's terms is that our brain has the ability, just like our car, when your car is overheating or a belt is misfiring or something, a light comes on and it says check engine or service engine soon, or I'm going to break down kind of thing, right? And it will shut down or it'll break down and shut itself off so that it doesn't burst into flames, right? Like it knows to protect itself. And that to me is a great metaphor for dissociation because if we don't have a system of checks and balances on ourselves, we would just completely like go to a hundred and self-destruct and like end ourselves, you know, like not to make light of like suicidal ideation, but like if there was not protections there, we wouldn't be able to like even go back, going back because they talk about like the Darwin origins of species stuff and all of that, but like we would not be able to survive. Like it's the fight, flight, freeze, you know, kind of system, but like we dissociate so that we don't have to feel the full brunt of what is occurring. Um, in the past, for those listening to the podcast who've been following the Mental Health Book Club and all of the, except for Michelle Obama's, uh, the other books that we read, the two, the, the memoirs, the people had significant uh, instances of traumas and dissociation. And the consensus is 
they dissociated because their brain had to protect them from the full force of what was happening to them. Like people who are being, say, trapped in a fire or are being sexually assaulted or whatever, their brain will dissociate so that they don't have to have vivid frame-by-frame memory of the thing that is happening to them because all of that information at once could actually physiologically kill them. And so we dissociate. Dissociation is a kind of like a safety switch in our brain. It serves a purpose. However, um, as we read in this section, when our brain, you know, because trauma does impact the uh, pathways of the brain, if our brain is permanently changed and then it's set to fire towards like the word hypervigilance was used, if it's set to fire all the time to that fight, flight, or freeze, like I'm in danger, I'm going to die, it becomes problem problematic because we can't just do regular everyday stuff without thinking that we're going to die. And so dissociation serves a purpose in some instances, like to protect us from the full force of something, but at the same time, it can, uh, it could be a barrier um, to things. So um, I teach social determinants of health. I'm not sure. I didn't catch them all on all my reading and I'm not sure if this is in the book. I've only pulled excerpts from it. This will be my first time reading it all the way through, but there was the comment in the chat about, is this a tendency why people sleep? And the answer is yes. So we are stressed. And John Zell, anybody, this might have already been in this reading because I didn't finish the whole thing, but our our stress axis is the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal. Um, But what we talk about in my public health course is that the byproduct of that is cortisol. And so that axis, you also put out um, your um, adrenaline. But if it's just even like low stress all the time, I think that's also why people don't recover and what impacts this trauma because the byproduct that cortisol just all the time into your body, all the time, all the time, all the time. And um, it literally inhibits your brain and then people have to sleep more. So you have that initial maybe jolt for the true life death or deeply traumatic situation which you're tired after because you have to literally recover. But then the stress of that, or even if it's just stress from a factory job or making ends meet or something like that, the continual firing, it like people, we want to talk about fight or flight all the time. Cortisol is a lot more mundane, it seems, but that impact continuously kills people. Yeah. And I, I have found, and I didn't really realize this until I started my most recent healing from trauma journey. Um, I didn't realize that, and this happens to me quite frequently, I'll be talking to somebody and then all of a sudden it's like I become a separate entity over here and Becky's head is talking over here and I don't remember what it's saying, you know, and that's me dissociating because I think my brain has sort of gotten caught in a loop. <clears throat> you know, and I, I know it'll get better and it'll, it'll, hopefully it'll heal. Um, but little things will trigger it or seemingly nothing, but my brain seems to think it should be, you know, protecting itself. Um, so as someone who experiences it more frequently than I realized, um, yeah, it's, it can be very frustrating for me because I don't feel like I should, it should be happening, but it, it is. <laughs> And that frustration, 
makes sense uh, because it's like, well, I did not sign up for Trauma 101. It signed me up. It, it was it was a course that I was enrolled in that I had no choice. And uh, the side effects and the lessons learned and the uh, residual damages are with me, despite the fact that I didn't sign up for that, right? And so then when it's like, okay, in addition to that, I sometimes lose track of where I am and my like self splits off from what I'm thinking and what I'm saying. And then it it comes, I mean, granted a lot of things in life, and this is not me being pithy or um, cynical, but it's not fair. But then sometimes you're just like, this is really not fair. Like I did not, I'm a, I'm a good person. Like I didn't, I didn't choose this, but now I have to deal with all of these like weird, not weird, but idiosyncrasies of, uh, you know, these conditions and stuff like, like, I feel like when it happens, people think that I'm dumb. Mm. (laughs) She can't remember her train of thought, you know, what's, what's, oh, she's getting older, you know, worrying about how other other people perceive you and. Or having to go through the exhaustion of explaining to them why it is that is, you know, what's happening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the COVID brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I am. Um, one more thing, too, I'll bring up when you talked about how fine-tuned your body, your brain is. Yeah, Brianna, I've tried to get my mom to engage with me in any kind of meaningful dialogue to repair our relationship. Um, but she's very not, she's not open to it at all. Um So up until recently, you know, she would come out every summer and visit with us. And she has, um, she's profoundly deaf in her right ear, has a cochlear implant. She can hear a little bit out of her left ear. So she puts her left side on my right side. Whenever she comes to visit, my right side of my body breaks out in hives. That's how like finely tuned my trauma is to my mom. Um, and it just, it blows my mind every time. And and it's every time she comes out, it's, and it's literally just all up and down my face. So, and, and, and I feel my flesh burn when I'm beside her. Like we talk about the body keeps the score. Like it's like, it's, it just, it burns, it hurts everything, you know, that plucking, plucking my last nerve. It's like, I feel like that my spine's being played like like a violin you know like it's just it's terrible but yeah this is it <laughs> i um i was wearing a blood pressure monitor for a while because i've always been hypotensive and then when things got really spicy last year my doctor was like you need to quit quit this or you're going to have a heart attack like it got that bad and um 30 minutes before my weekly one on one meeting with my boss blood pressure would shoot up like 30 minutes before And he told me not to look at the readings until after the week, because you don't want to, you know, we don't want to add that, that bias, um, into things. And it was that it was before phone calls with certain people. It like, it's insane. It's insane. The technology is like giving us a lot of insights into things. Uh, I remember I have an Apple watch now, but I had a Fitbit prior to that and, um, there was one day where I had I was getting ready to do a therapy session. Something had happened, and it was one of those panic. I live with panic disorder, listeners to the podcast. If you're not familiar, um, so panic attacks don't always like have a specific trigger. 
Um, but I was just triggered somehow and I started having a panic attack, but I have ways to kind of manage myself and still be able to do my job effectively. Yay pills. But I, I go into the session and literally the Fitbit is going off and it's, uh, the alert on my phone is like, are you running? Do, do I need to start a running workout? And I look at the thing and literally because my heart was beating so fast, it thought I was in a aerobic workout. And this is just like a, a piece of technology that I'm wearing. I was literally sitting in a chair, like looking at a screen. And then even more so, like now I have an Apple watch and I'll notice that on days where I have really high anxiety, my rings get closed a lot faster. And I wonder if it's just the um, obviously it's a, it's a device, so it doesn't really know my mental health or it doesn't really, you know, it just tracks like heartbeat and, uh, probably body temperature. I don't know how it works. Um, but I, I bet there are some days where the readings are really off. Like it thinks I burned way more calories than I did, or, you know, had more, um, aerobic activity than I did because, you know, you basically have something tracking your, your vitals all the time. So, um, while the technology is good, it's sometimes like, well, it's good for me because I'm like, whoa, something was really off that day or um, you start to notice trends. So you learn about yourself. But what uh, Brianna just said, it, it goes to show that like certain instances or triggers or experiences can literally impact our body. Um, and we have technology now that's showing us that, of course, we get the information and they're like, well, what do we do with that? But one more thought on dissociation before we move on. On page 12, uh, there's a quote um, that I'll share is basically like, not only do we dissociate automatically based on our experiences stuff, but then to, uh, I guess, escape or to feel some relief from our dissociation or our trauma or the symptoms of these things, we do things to choose to dissociate. Some of them are good. Uh, and some of them, not so much, but quote, it is hard enough for observers to bear witness to pain. It is, is it any wonder then that the traumatized individuals themselves cannot tolerate remembering it? And they often resort to using drugs, alcohol, or self-mutilation to block out their unbearable knowledge, end quote. And so we all have something or a medley of things that we do to dissociate. I... Uh, I think for me, it is definitely reading books because it is a relatively inexpensive and healthy way to basically check out of my own brain because I can get into, I love memoirs because I can get into somebody else's mess and it's like, oh, I don't have to think about my own uh, or, you know, just stories or, or things like that. So reading, but also like there's a, there's a ton of different ways that you can kind of dissociate. Uh, I'm wondering if, uh, any of y'all here, um, like kind of can think of some things that you do either healthy or not so healthy or in between that it's kind of like a chosen dissociation or something you find yourself doing when you're highly triggered or stressed. Do you think this is like America's true crime obsession? I love true crime. I love it. Me too. Um, but everybody I know that loves true crime has some deep trauma. Actually, that's true. One of my very best friends, she we call ourselves murder roonies. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, but I, I crochet too. I like I like to crochet. Like here's the little I like to read. I don't know if you guys can like see behind me, but I have like two bookshelves and like 
doing the type of games. Um, but I a ton of books in like my room. I have like a little reading nook. I have like <laughs> um this like pillow on the chair that says like just one more chapter. So like I feel like that has helped me to get over a lot of trauma. I've really gotten into memoirs. I was so sad that like I couldn't get in on like the book club for Prince Harry's memoir because I've been dying to read that and just like escape into like somebody else's life. <laughs> that was my favorite book that we've read so far. It's so good. Have you gotten it yet? No, I haven't, but I did read um Jeanette McCurdy's book a lot. It was good. A mm-hmm. lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, both of those were were really good. But yeah, a good memoir can definitely give some perspective, you know, not because I always say comparison is a thief of joy. We don't want to compare our lives to somebody else's. But sometimes it's like, I think especially with Prince Harry, the consensus was we initially like had reservations, like we're not going to relate to this entitled, like incredibly wealthy, whatever. But like, I can't really off the top of my head think of any other memoir I've ever read where I'm like, Nope. His anxiety is kind of wired just like mine. He's a lot of his just experiences really resonate. It doesn't matter if he grew up in a different country with different means and stuff like that. Like, I think sometimes escaping into other people's stories is a it's a it's a healthy form of dissociation. And obviously, any good thing can be taken too far. You know, there there are some people who like obsessively will, okay, I'm reading about, you know, say Prince Harry or the Royal, and then they'll like really like go there and they forget that they're a real person who has to go to a job and stuff like that. I think another one for me where it's kind of a, oh, and somebody put in the chat that another way that they dissociate healthily is going swimming. I think that's a good one too. For me, another one is writing. Uh, I've always been, I've always blogged like about mental health. I've been doing it for years, but I've kind of fallen off on writing as much because I had started to focus on doing this podcast. But when I want to say it was the week before or the week during when the uh, footage came out for um, Tyree Nichols. And I had to basically, I had to, I took a week off from Instagram because I was exposed to the video that I did not want to see. And I was like, fuck this, because this, this social media thing made me dissociate. I literally like had, and I've talked about this on a previous episode, but like, Uh, I had tingly sensations. It triggered my own trauma of dealing with law enforcement. Um, And so in that, I was like, well, I'm not checking Instagram and, you know, trying to be entertained through that for a short period of time. So I really threw myself into writing personal essays and I discovered, you know, I can write like a mental health article all day. It's nothing to me, but this is more so like on the personal side of things. And I'm talking about like, Sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's light, but sometimes it's like, nope, here's some traumatic, here's some, you know, things. And I try to use my, I think that the creativity part of like using my sense of humor and my skill for writing to create something, though I'm processing things while I'm doing it, I'm also dissociating at the same time. I don't know if it makes sense. Hopefully it does. Because I, there have been times where I'll say, finish seeing clients for a day. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit down for an hour and write this essay. And when the session ended at seven and I'm leaving my office at midnight, 
I'm like, what the fuck? That was supposed to be an hour. And I literally don't know what happened. Like I dissociated into it. And of course I have this like piece of, you know, writing to show for it, but it's a form of dissociating where I can like lose myself in like heavily processing something. But dissociation means I went offline for everything else. So like everything else around me didn't matter because I was able to do that. So I enjoy that. Um, It hasn't become problematic where I'm like, forget to pick my kid up from preschool or something like that. But yeah, there we we have healthy ways that we can dissociate. But in that one quote, it kind of showed like, you know, people who don't know better, who are people who don't take the time to get the education, the emotional intelligence and stuff like that, will sometimes like turn to things that can temporarily help us dissociate. But I was just talking to a client before we got on here the anxiety, the depression, the trauma, the, all of that stuff is waiting for you on the other side. And it's been warming itself up and like getting itself ready for when you come down from whatever uh, high or alcohol or buzz or whatever it is that you have. It's still waiting there. So the the moral there is we got to do something a little bit more substantial so that we don't keep running into it. Out of I mean, obviously, there was a lot of pages here that we covered. Was there any other like uh, chapter, topic, um, quote? Um, and we we're not out of time or anything, but I just want to make sure that y'all are able to share the quotes and the things that were most significant to you. It was on page thirty-seven. Um, like this section was talking about like pharmacology, and he was talking about like antipsychotics and. Um, he said half a million children in the United States currently taking antipsychotic drugs and that children from low-income families are four times as likely as privately insured children to, perce- to receive antipsychotic medications. I was, I was like, when I read that statistic, I mean, like thinking about it, I guess I can kind of understand it, but like, it's just, it's just shocking. I underlined that exact same passage and and it looks like a couple of people here have underlined that exact same thing. If you read a book on Kindle, I have the paper version of this book, but sometimes when you're reading a Kindle book, it'll like tell you what things have been popularly like underlined. I bet you that one is there. Uh, but as I've a lot of my early career was spent working uh, exclusively with clients who are like low income, like exclusively Medicaid populations. And this right here is so true because they'll, there'll be kids who you're half wondering, like, why do you even have this diagnosis in your paperwork? Like you have a bad home. You don't have oppositional defiant disorder. You have a traumatic environment and you're reacting to your environment. Why are you on a mood stabilizer and like three antidepressants and fucking tranquilizer and ADHD medication, which sometimes it's truly the medications are doing opposite things. And I'm like, what is this happening? But like overly medicated to the point where now, especially like, you know, low income, often black and brown people are so like, don't even talk, like literally I'll have new clients come in and they say, if you're going to talk to me about medication, I'm leaving. And I'm like, it's, it's really messed people up because, you know, the systems, you know, our healthcare system is 
incredibly broken, um, as are most systems. But the fact that like these statistics right here were insane. And when I read them, I was like, yep, that is true. And, you know, children are definitely over-medicated, not to say that medications are not helpful and as a tool. Uh, but one of the things I liked about him, I can't, it was kind of like throughout, but he was basically like saying like, yeah, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm supposed to prescribe medication, but medication doesn't help if you don't change the environments, if you don't get at the root cause, and uh, if you don't uh, help people connect their mind and all of that with the sensations that they feel in their body. I think the general consensus I got from all of this is that our, first of all, healthcare, most uh big systems are inadequate for the number of people we have living on this planet, but also it's very piecemeal. Like at earlier in this episode, I talked about the difference between a psychiatrist, a psych nurse practitioner, a psychologist, a therapist, a, you know, a person who got a degree in psychology, like all of these different like levels. You would think that everyone, we work together, we like talk to each other, we collaborate as a treatment team and all of that doesn't work like that in real life. Like I'm a therapist. I get information on people's doctors and prescribers. And if they've had other therapists or if, I don't know, say they see an OB uh, for birth control and they're having complications or something, I'll get releases of information for all these people. 99% of those people never return my calls, emails, faxes, or anything like that. No one's working together. Um, so I say all of that to say, we have like to go back to that statistic, we have these kids who are over medicated. No one's checking the people who are prescribing the medications are not checking to see, are you also seeing a therapist? Uh, there's no one really checking to see, is somebody talking to the home environment to try to fix that, to make sure that they have food, clothing, shelter, transportation, resources that they need. And so, and on top of that, these same children end up in the uh, school to prison pipeline because they're looked at as deviant when in reality, their bodies are keeping the score of the trauma that they uh, experience. But the school system is also incredibly broken. Sorry, Becky. And uh, it's only designed to try to teach you something. And if you're a problem, we need to get you out of here because we don't have you're the resources. The yeah. So it's like... Uh, all of these things, uh, you know, it, it's a sh we, we see these statistics and they're shock uh, shocking or they like hit us. And then it's like, it feels daunting because it's like, well, what do we do? But I think at least, the, I mean, what is a book going to do? But this book, I think is, especially for most of us here, we have read a lot of books or we have some like background education in mental health or psychology and things like that. It's uh, sharpening our awareness to then feel a little bit more equipped to do something on the smaller scale of the day-to-day -day, or to at least understand our own form of crazy just a little bit better. So well, I Jenzo, think I went off on a tangent there again, but maybe some of that made sense. To add on to that, kind of what you're saying on page 36, it just says, Drugs, in many places, drugs have displaced therapy and enabled patients to suppress their problems without addressing the underlying issues. And so I think that's, you know, in the, the poor communities, a pill is a lot cheaper than driving the gas to go to therapy to go, you know, to actually to do the work. 
And I was a kid who was put in therapy, thank God, but because I was the broken one, right? (laughs) I wasn't a product of my environment. I was broken and I needed fixing. So, you know, I was very grateful actually that I went because it was my first real experience with healing and validation, um, which kind of backfired on everybody because it made me stronger, not um, more compliant. Um, yeah, they and it also says that they um, they're used in to make abused and neglected children more tractable. So it's just again used to kind of put whole people together. And being a public school educator, um, I too now I'm wondering. And and you know I know people are over medicating. You know I know, but I I just wonder. But it's funny. There's so many people who need it. There's certain people who don't. You know, you see it in the schools and you're like, okay, well, who are you seeing or whatever? And then it's like, well, they go out into the community to try to get the health care services. Like I talked about a psychologist. You know how hard it is to get in with a real psychologist who does like actual testing? No. So now primary care physicians are just like, do this little checklist that I downloaded on Google. If you have enough of the check boxes, you can have some Adderall. Like that's that's healthcare. That that's mental health care for a lot of people, unfortunately, and we're trying our best. But I wanted to add one more thing on that next page. Um, we should start doing like a raise of hands when someone like gives a quote because I feel like we're all highlighting the same things. And I'm like, yay, I got that one too. Um, it's like collecting trading cards or whatever. Anyway, page 38, um, quote, mainstream medicine is firmly committed to a better life through chemistry. And the fact that we can actually change our own physiology and inner equilibrium by means other than drugs is rarely considered. I love that. Um, I actually took a picture of it and sent it to uh, someone that I care about a lot who is hell-bent on ever trying medication. Um, And I sent that to them and just validated them that um, they're definitely on to something that... uh, Western medicine is not the only solution. So I found that um, good. And obviously, you know, uh, if you're listening to the podcast, you listen to the Prince Harry thing. We talked, we had a good little conversation about holistic um, treatments and interventions for mental health. So I, in the example of Prince Harry, he did therapy, meditation, psychedelics, uh, drugs. Uh, he did these like extreme adventure things to the i think north and south yeah yeah so he did he did a lot of different things to see what works he also did emdr he he tried a lot of different things right so that that quote that i just shared though the by uh means other than drugs rarely being considered is definitely kind of piggybacks off of what becky said about like we kind of live in a society where it's just like here's a pill and uh, I believe, Brianna, you work, have worked in, in, in healthcare uh, to some extent, but our, our whole system and the model is set up to, is like a disease um, treatment model as opposed to holistic, um, if you want to chime in on that to give some more insight. Hey, sorry. Uh, my cat was going into my dresser, so I missed part of that. But with regard to trying to make things more holistic, yes. And I think what's frustrating, when we look at the patient care trifecta, you're looking at three things. Everybody wants healthcare that's going to be accessible, affordable, and high quality. And even countries where there are higher rates of satisfaction, you still see disparity. Um, 
I love to point to um, our Scandinavian countries because I think we idolize Scandinavian life. Oh, look at all their maternity leave. Look at their early childhood education. Yes. And yet, if you're not within a city, some of their rural healthcare outcomes are the most poor. Um, I think that this is going to be one of the next big shifts that becomes make or break for healthcare systems because the divide has now grown to the point that we have to be considering things in tandem. There are more people, more people than providers. The ratio grows every single day. And so now we're going to have to collaborate if we want to be effective. Something that's exciting to me is that some measures regarding collaboration and in how to treat the whole patient are coming down from accrediting bodies. So recently I had to answer surveys for the health system about what we were doing to address those gaps in care. What are we doing to ensure that patients have a care team? What are we doing to ensure that the care team is not something that just exists in the lofty, lofty patient chart, but that it's really happening? Do I think that they can hold us to that if it's not met right now? No, but I also think it's a warning shot. It's a warning shot for down the pipe. So that's, that's what I'm hopeful of. Um, something that I'm really, really excited about in my personal life is um, I'm helping to get the new um, local university and hospital systems biotech program started, uh, biodesign. And the reason I was put on the governance board and now am applying to the director of ops role is because of health equity. Um, I was sitting on that board and I was saying that when we have these new innovations in care, when we are looking at things, just like how we were talking with your, your Fitbit and your heart rate monitor, we can do so much now with technology to benefit the person. But our horizon is further with all this technology, right? Things that weren't possible, we pushed the horizon past. And so now we have an opportunity to either bring people with us and close the gap or push the horizon further and increase the distance. And I'm really hoping that while we innovate, we innovate health equity into design. Thank you for sharing that insight from that. It gave me a little bit of hope that I don't think I had prior to hearing that. Side note, disclosure. I literally had a breakdown last night as I, um, first of all, I live with anxiety and somebody, I believe Beyonce is probably pushing buttons and pulling levers because we're just characters in her story. Something is going on in the atmosphere and whatever that everyone is losing their goddamn minds right now. Might be spring fever, might be something with the moon. I don't know. All is not well. The children are not all right. But I have particularly been having a very high amount of anxiety and I did all of the holistic things yesterday. I went to the gym, I write, I talked to my psychiatrist, got a new medication added to the collection. Um, I now have two pill containers, so get on my level. Um, and I uh, did all the things, right? But I'm sitting here in the evening because one of my ways to kind of cope and to keep myself balanced is to be organized. I have a health, uh, a health savings account card that I use for things. And with that, you have to save all your receipts. And so I was just doing a simple task of organizing all of my receipts from when I talked to the 
the the psych and when I went to the pharmacy to pick up the things and I'm putting all these receipts just in a pile with a paper clip on it. And then of course I have an anxious mind and you know that like death spiral that happens with anxiety. I see heads nodding in the Zoom. My head went there and I start looking at it and I'm like, and then of course I look at my HSA account and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? It has just started being March and I've spent this much money on healthcare and it's not, this is after the overpriced health insurance that I have. And also on top of that, I have to fight like I'm trying to get Renaissance tickets just to get a goddamn appointment one time a year with my doctor. It, I had a breakdown because I'm like, this sucks. And also I am not a poor person. I make a comfortable living, but God damn, it was so much expenses just to just I'm sitting there looking at and putting the receipts in a pile and entering them into my HSA like portal or whatever. And it blew my mind how much money I'm spending a month on. And and, and it truly it hit me because on top of that, I'm having all this anxiety and I'm like, anxiety is expensive. Um, and I was adding in like my therapy costs and all of this other stuff. And I'm like, we were just talking about it before. It's like, it's that class trauma 101 that we got signed up for that we did not want to be in. It was just on the, the general ed curriculum that we had to take to get the degree. And I'm over here like, when, where is my subsidy? Where, when do I get to bill those who have wronged me, when do I get to send them some of these bills? Because this seems unfair. And then on top of that, you take all of this and try to go into these broken systems that are inadequate, cannot serve you, and all of that. Again, felt like a rant. It probably will make sense when I get back into editing and I'm going to be like, I said that. Uh, But I just wanted to share that because I feel like that's a very relatable, real human experience that we're all probably privy to. And that's coming from somebody who um, I am very grateful that I'm able to access services and uh, to be able to pay for the things. Now, granted, um, it's a stretch and it's very expensive, but um, yeah, I had a little meltdown. I was like, why is, why did I, first of all, why do I have anxiety? That's the human condition. I'm not going to figure that out this side of living, but it's so expensive. And then it just really hits you sometimes when you're at your worst. It's like, this is really unfair. And you're just wanting answers and you're wanting a new system that can make it to where I don't have to spend a giant portion of my resources that I bust my ass to earn to function as a normal human being to then continue to receive the resources that I need to survive. So I'm going to drop the mic there and let y'all talk. Nope, not important. Oh, oh, no. Well, I was going to say that. Um, what you I, have to say is important. So we're going to get is. back to you. But. Yes, it is. I have rheumatoid arthritis and the medicine that I have to take, it's infusion. And it is, it's like 14,000 for a dose, right? Like it's ridiculous. I know, but I, I pay $40, right? So anyway, um, what I found out, which I didn't know, which this is me just bitching about insurance really is that I've been on a half dose for two or three months because you have to prove to the insurance that I need a full one. So meanwhile, my body breaks into like, I've been having a really bad flare the past two days, you know, swelling. It's just, it's so annoying. Anyway, God damn, like, how, come on. <laughs> like, 
why, why, why? Um, anyway. Yay. Sorry, Brianna. You go it's actually not important. I just thought it was funny because, um, John Zell, you said, uh, when do I get to bill everyone for their wrongdoing? I, um, my dissociation pleasure is trashy magazines with wine, sometimes in the bathtub. Love me that. Um, and so it was probably in Cosmo or L, like something like not a high level body keeps the score. Like prefer the articles when I'm slightly buzzed sort of magazine. But I read it a while ago. Gosh, I wish I had saved it. I would need to find it. Um, but this uh, woman was talking about all the therapy that she'd been in before she got married um, because of guys that had just been uh, jerks. And then the cycle of coming back and leaving and blah, 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 uh, which I understand all too well. And um she said that something very cathartic she did uh, on her bachelorette weekend with her girlfriend. She started Venmo requesting all the guys in her life that had done her wrong. So it was like for that time that you ruined dinner and I paid the tab $50 for the therapy sessions after you ghosted me. $300. Like she went through with her girlfriends and billed these guys on Venmo. And some of them actually have done some work on themselves and or thought it was funny and paid the request. And so that was how she funded the rest of her bachelorette weekend. So you do you, John Zell. Just try it. I want to do that immediately. I want to do that. Immediately, like let's parents- just let Class let's out. just shut let's just shut down the book club right now, and we're all going to take our phones out, and we're going to follow that. I think that would be the best use of our time. That <laughs> How much would we bill parents for their fuckery? What's that worth? <laughs> uh, people are about to go bankrupt when I start sending these requests out. Okay. <laughs> wow. I mean, cast the cast the net wide. Uh, no sin too small. Because five bucks is five bucks. I'm just saying. I haven't done it yet, but man, that is an attractive route. Well, when my daughter turned 21, she put on her, she was driving home and she put on the back windshield of her car or the whatever, the rear window. She put Venmo me a drink or whatever, and then put her Venmo on there. And she got, I don't know, like $15, $20 on the way home, something like that, which, you know. I like that, that. That was the comic relief that we needed. Thank you, Brianna. And so it, it was important after all. You were like, it's not important. I'm like, that made my day. Uh, I needed to hear that story. It's not deeply important, um, but I did think it was. After hysterical. I just like spiraled last night over the unfairness of it. And then like, I'm reliving it as I'm sharing it for like educational purposes. And then you're like, you gave me the perfect solution. So I know what I'm doing after book club tonight. <laughs> It's also funny. Like, I kind of want to do it and see what some of my exes would. Although I feel like it would inspire some of them that are still in the woodwork to just creep back out. And I don't know that I want to initiate that contact. So I guess I, I would really have to be like, I'm, I'm going to have to think on this, but it's definitely something that I am thinking on. Yeah. I can just see myself getting blocked by a lot of people. Just the adjectives of creeping out of the woodwork. Maybe think of like a. I don't know. What are the, the things that you would? Uh, termite? Becky, this is the season. 
there's like two prime seasons where the, um, gosh, what's a good adjective that I want to use for this? The immature adult man child comes out to frolic. Weenie. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're like, hello, how are you? And I'm like, I was doing just fine. Like, do you have radar that I am finally happy? Is they can smell it. Here? Do have radar. Do you smell my fucking joy? Like, get out. Yeah. Please. Yeah. And I just started responding with either who is this or what do you want? Straight to I the point. I don't even respond anymore. I just blog. <laughs> like, I just, I'm sorry. Unless you start that initial, like, hey, girl, hey. No. <laughs> How about, I'm sorry. Or how about you pay my therapy bill? That's better. Yeah. I got to say, though, I have connected, reconnected with a couple exes that actually did do some work on themselves. And those have become some good friendships. But it's not like I do that immediately. Like, I'm talking like years went by. Years and years and years. Like, a college boyfriend and I randomly ran into each other on a hiking trail um, the day after Christmas last year after not dating for like nine years. But bringing it back, uh, I did want to share one more quote um, on page 70 uh, towards the end of that first section. um, Quote, being anchored in the present while revisiting the trauma opens the possibility of deeply knowing that the terrible events belong to the past. For that to happen, the brain's watchtower, cook, and timekeeper need to be online. Side note, people listening to the podcast, if you haven't read already, it gives different roles um, in the trauma. Um, But anyway, the quote continues, therapy won't work as long as people keep being pulled back into the past, end quote. That right there is the basis of my work as an EMDR therapist. I see Becky doing the the butterfly hug to ground herself, right? If you're being pulled back into the past while you're trying to work on yourself, you're not going to get anywhere. And I think that traces back to what Whitney shared before the the statistics of like the kids on Medicaid who are being given all these medications and stuff, but they're going back into these traumatized uh, environments and stuff like that. You can't do anything with that. Like, uh, and also Becky, look at me coming for full circle with all these stories. Uh, Becky had shared that uh, she was brought to therapy because she was the problem that needed to be fixed and stuff like that. And so this, this quote that I just shared basically says, you ain't going to get anywhere unless you change the environment. And oftentimes, and like it said, the, you know, we used to hear the thing of like, oh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Earlier, I shared a quote about how trauma changes our brain chemistry. It literally fucks us up, sometimes permanently, right? And we have to work around that. But with this one of being pulled back into the past and like uh, as a therapist too, people often, I specialize in working with adolescents and young adults, people will bring their kids to therapy. Like, I don't know what's going on with them or whatever. We get to talking after a couple of sessions, I'm sitting here like, it's the parents, it's the parents, it's the environment, it's the control, it's the helicopterness, it's the mind games, it's the financial manipulation and all of that. And uh, anybody who's ever met me knows that I 
had possibly a fragment of a fraction of a filter, maybe kind of, sort of, some days intermittently before the pandemic. I don't give a fuck what anybody thinks of. I'm going to say what I need to say. I'm going to, my three, four, three rules are speak your truth without being an asshole. And if you follow steps one and two, you're not responsible for how someone receives the truth. Usually... I don't get fired, surprisingly. And sometimes I'm like, I said it incredibly blunt to these people. They're going to fire me. And I'll let the kid know. I'm like, okay, so I'm about to read your parent for filth at the end of this session. Just letting you know. And they were like, go for it. And surprisingly, they'll usually just kind of like, I think they dissociate because they don't want to deal with the fact that I just, you know, I'm like probably significantly younger than them, but have just told them about themselves, you know? I tell them these things not because I'm just trying to lecture somebody or to be like, ah, I got you. But no, it's important because if I sit here and talk to your kid or your young adult or whatever, this person you brought to me saying fix them because these are the behaviors or whatever, but I determined that their environment is not conducive to having a full quality of life, a full biological, psychological, social, uh, emotional fullness to life. And I see if we change the environment, these things can be improved. I must speak on it. I feel as a moral um, obligation because otherwise I'm just sitting here collecting money, watching a person talk about their problems every week and then, okay, go on back out to your you're traumatized and uh, chaotic and dysfunctional home. And uh, I'll see you next week. Just make sure that there's money on the card. You know, I can't do that. I can't sleep at night knowing that. I said I would rather risk them firing me and potentially planting a seed or advocating at the very least to uh, uh, hopefully change something than to just watch and see that the environment needs to be changed, but not say anything because I feel like it's going to affect my bottom line. So for the most part, it hasn't, I mean, I still have a successful business and whatever, but truly that statement of therapy won't work as long as people keep getting pulled back into the past. If nothing change, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And that's a that's a, a pithy cliche one, but damn it if it ain't true. So for me too, um, I see it as like my brain is the home that I'm returning to. And so when I went through just talk therapy after talk therapy, I, I kept reliving the same traumas, but nothing was ever really changing. It was just remembering. Um, and what I found in going through, you know, a new approach, the EMDR that I'm doing, it's, it's much different. It's you're actively doing something with the trauma so I can go back to a home or my brain that's processing things, not still stuck in a circle. Does that make sense? Thank you. But any, uh, obviously we read, uh, you know, a lot there, it got really clinical, um, scientific. When I got to the end of this, I was like, I'm going to keep reading because I'm getting some things out of it. Um, It kind of reminds me of the, the thing is on the other side of grad school and on the other side of I'm far enough removed from college that I'm no longer above the six figures of owing student loans. I've, I've gotten below that threshold, not paid off yet, but working on it. Um, But I'm, 
a couple years removed from like the education component of it. I'm not repulsed by reading something uh, that's a little bit more dense and like academic because I'm not forced to do it for copious amounts of money. Um, so I'm kind of enjoying it. Um, it's definitely a change of pace from some of the other books that we've read, but so I have to read this, uh, thing from the, the, the chat. Uh, Brianna says you can always swing it back around town, uh, hashtag grad school debt, hashtag, uh, crying and ramen. Yes, I get that. Thank you for sharing that. I don't know, just being able to like kind of get into the, the meat and potatoes of something. But with Prince Harry, there was a lot of like, we knew he had trauma and we kind of saw that he was like at a place where he was trying to figure out what worked for him. But uh, having read that and then looking at this, I'm almost like reading this. I'm like, ah, that explains how, like I'm almost using Prince Harry as like a case study. And I'm like, ah, this, cause I have it fresh in my mind, his story. But I think all of us who are reading this have also been like, oh my gosh, that is why I do this. Or this is why I'm kind of wired to go about this a certain way. So yeah, I'm enjoying it. Um, any takeaways, any highlights, quotes, anything that we didn't get to that somebody wanted to share? I have one. Let me see if I can find it. Because this, like, I feel like the statistics were, like, drawing me in. But, like, he said on page 87, the landmark A's study, which he'll discuss more in detail in chapter 9, showed that women who had an early history of abuse and neglect were seven times more likely to be raped in adulthood, and that women who, as children, had witnessed their mothers being assaulted by their partners had a vastly increased chance to fall victim to domestic violence. I was like, wow. Like, your childhood actually can, like, really shape your adulthood. Definitely. And they had that one example of, like, the woman who, like, had been assaulted or, like, I want to say she was like kidnapped or something and raped. And then like she became a prostitute and then like had a pimp and then like got out of the life and was like in college and stuff like that. And then ended up reverting back. And it was like, that was a really interesting example of how if you, you, you could rem- like, for, so I just got, went on a rant about how we need to change the environments in order to have a, a hope at for therapy to work and stuff like that. But it's the same time, sometimes you could take the traumatized person out of the environment, but the work isn't always done. And because the work isn't always done, they return to the, the environment that it's kind of like we go with what we know. Uh, and I'm often giving the metaphor for people of a fork in the road. I say, you're at a fork in the road, you have to choose one. One road is the pain of change, and the other road is the pain of staying the same. And I said, you got to choose which road you're going to go down. Each one of them is going to come with some discomfort. You know where the road of staying the same ends. It's going to be the same of what you have. The uh, pain of change has the hope and the promise of something better. But you have to go through the pain of getting out of your comfort zone and overcoming hurdles cutting people off, setting boundaries, uh, standing up for yourself, whatever those things might be. And oftentimes people don't make it past the fork in the road. They're like, I don't know. That's a lot of people quit therapy when they're faced with that, that fork in the road. And I don't take it personally, but sometimes the, um, and I know in our last uh, book club, one of the people, Ashley, she was talking about how she's done a lot of therapy and like even done EMDR 
Um, there are just certain things like her brain will not let her access. She's like, absolutely, it's going to shut me down. It's going to take me out. Like not in a suicidal way, but it's just like, my brain won't go there. I can't do it. And sometimes life be like that. That's why I love this work that I do. And I like mental health and psychology because it's not a puzzle that can just be solved. We're never going to figure out like how to live the perfect life and not have any problems. It's like, no, we're going to live life. We're going to have a lot of problems. And uh, at least my particular defense mechanism is to crack jokes and to struggle my way through it. But um, it it's quite interesting. But hopefully that, um, that connection there made sense, Whitney. So thank you for um, sharing that that statistic because yeah, it, I, I got to add one more thing. The re, it's almost like returning to the same thing over and over again, like expecting different results. But I think this book is doing a really good job of like, it's not just a, cause I think they said it early on. It's not a moral failing. And I think a lot of people are ignorant because they don't read books. I actually have a bookmark on the back. It says, don't be a dumb bitch, read books, love it. But if you want the link to where those bookmarks are found, just shoot me an email. But they don't read or they don't understand. So they really think, oh, um, you know, John Zell's just lazy. He doesn't have ADHD. He's just lazy. Or, uh, you know, the, Becky, she's she's just too scared. She's she's spoiled. She, she's just, a, a, you know, she has all everything to, you know, that she could have. But she just she doesn't want to drive on the highway or something like that. And it's like. They'll give a blanket statement. I'm just using your name. That's not anything in particular that I know about Becky. But, you know, we oftentimes it's easier just to give a pithy like this is the reason why. And people often will back it up with, oh, well, you know, I've worked in this field for so many years. So I'm going to say this blanket statement that's really ignorant and uneducated. And we just want to just like put it there. Oftentimes the people who are suffering feel worse and they don't want to talk about what it is because people are dismissing them and stuff like that. But I like to think so far in this book, despite the fact that it was different than what I expected, I think it's helping to unlock even some like fixed ways of thinking that I had. Because even as a therapist, sometimes I'm like, why is this person not trying? Or why is this so hard for them? Like, you know, and just like, I think, you know, Becky could probably say like being in education, like she probably has moments where she's like, what is wrong with these people? You know, like, why is it this hard? Or I know, um, you know, Whitney works in HR. So it's like, there are probably some things that it's like, so simple, how many fucking emails have I sent you on how to get into the portal? And you seem to be emailing me again about the same damn thing. Like, and that's not even anything in particular that Whitney has told me. I'm just, I know uh, HR type things uh, and I've seen it happen, but it's almost like we, we sometimes are like, what is wrong with people? Um, but I think a, a more like academic sort of thing like this, it shows us that we're all probably broken in many different ways. Our cracks just look different. They're on different parts of the body. They're different depths and on different spectrums, different colors, and they come from different um, different backgrounds and experiences. And each of us are in our different levels of healing and bandaging and like overcoming and strengthening. So in conclusion, we're all fucked up and we're trying our best, hopefully. That's all I got. We all crazy.
Yeah, you know, as a teacher, I've never repeated myself ever. <laughs> Those brains teeming with hormones just listen eagerly, waiting for the next instruction to follow. Thirsty for knowledge. Really <laughs> <laughs> <Probably> thirsty. <laughs> it ain't for knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I always have props nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you all for working. You know, I always, I say this in every month's book club. I'm like, thank goodness that I have y'all to go through. Cause whether it's like a hard book, because it's like dealing through a particular person's trauma, like in a memoir or going through a not so great written book that I'm not going to say which one I thought that was. Um, and we're just like kind of, you know, muddling through it together and trying to find the best out of it. But this one I think is dense and it's uh, obviously uh, the topic of trauma is a hard one to tackle, especially when you have like a, uh, I don't know, 450 page book that we're supposed to break down in four weeks. I think we did a pretty good job. So thank you listeners for listening. Uh, to this first section. Just for a recap, we did do pages one through 106 of The Body uh, Keeps the Score. Um, So be sure to join us back next week. Uh, We are going to be discussing pages 107 through 204. Um, So we will continue to unpack this this work on trauma and um, hopefully bring some insights to share with you all. Um, So until next time, thank you for listening and take care. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.